Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, divers. It's so great to be back recording. It is. We had a short lockdown and then we had a week of having to wear masks indoors. So it's nice to be back in the studio. It is. And we do want to send a particular shout out to our listeners on the Eastern seaboard we who do. are having a hard time i really mm. hope you have some good books yes and a few nice things to eat yeah it's just dreadful in sydney yeah really is. because you do need to employ all the tricks and treats to get through a tough time like this so hopefully our conversation today will provide a little bit of a diversion we have a great episode coming up today we thought it might be fun to each choose a book that we hoped the other would enjoy. Yes. And then do a swap. Swap. And a few episodes back, we each handed over the books that we had chosen for the other. I gave Louise my battered old copy of Islet Waldman's Love and Treasure about the Hungarian gold train in World War II, which I had just loved mm. when it came out in 2013. And Lou gave me a beautiful brand new <laughs> copy of Salman Rushdie's Midnight Children. And then we took our books home and we dutifully read them, but we have not discussed them at all. Not at all. So today we'll be discussing those books Mm -hmm. and finding out what the other one thought. So we're also going to talk about a book we've just finished recently and a few other things that we've been diving into in the last little while. We're all primed. Um, We've got our water busters keeping an eye on us. Um, My Baloo is sound asleep at home with his four legs in the air. And we're all ready to go. Yes. (laughs) So um, we did just want to read out a couple of really nice messages that we've received. Did you want to go first, Lou? Yes. We received a lovely message from an Instagram handle. I should refer to it as Runner Reads. And I think it's a lady. Can I say she? I think it might be. I think it might be. Yeah. I have taught Wuthering Heights many times and you two did an excellent job discussing it. I love your podcast. I always save it for my long runs on the weekends. Happy reading. So she's obviously a very athletic type. quite inspiring actually. I love that one. And I've got one from Claire Aitken, Celis Aitken, and she wrote, I listened to this episode this week, that was our Wuthering Heights episode, and really enjoyed it. We'll be regularly listening from now on. So that was a lovely message to receive. So thank you for those. We love receiving feedback. doesn't always have to be good, but it's just fun to receive feedback from listeners so if you would like to send us a message on our instagram account we would love to receive it and people are very good about suggesting themes to us as oh, well and yes, so we had we don't get to all of them but no we've had some really cracking suggestions yeah, yeah. Haven't i've we? made a list I've yeah got a huge long list of all the suggestions mm. so we'll eventually we will eventually we'll get to all of them mm. so first of all let's just have a chat about what we've 
book that we've finished recently that we loved. Did you want to go first, Lou? Yep, good. I actually can't claim any sort of link between my two books today. Um, so it's purely random. And as you said, the most recent read. Some of you will no doubt have read lots of books written by this author, but I must confess she's new to me. And the book I read most recently is a children's Bible by the prolific American author Lydia Millett. And boy, oh boy, what a book. Oh, wow. I have not read her at all. No, and she is prolific. You know, she's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Actually, I think this might have been one of the finalists for the Pulitzer Prize, but she's award-winning. She's an extraordinary writer. And the really funny thing about this book, because I had seen something online about it and quite some time ago and I wanted to read it and got a copy of it. But when I went to get a copy of it from the bookshop, they couldn't find it oh. because it's called a children's Bible. It had been put in reference, oh. children's reference. Oh. <laughs> and it's, it is not the children's Bible. Let me tell you. So it's a mid-2020 release. So it was released in the heart of the pandemic, which it turns out was perfect timing. It's only 225 pages long, but it's a really big story, which speaks volumes for how well wow. she writes. Yeah. So we meet this large ensemble of characters a few years into the future. Several families have rented an old house. They call it a summer house uh, for the holidays. It's alluded to the fact that it was previously owned by robber barons. Right. And there are lots of adults, mostly couples with a few extras, and a gang of teenage children, some older, some younger. And the stereotypical battle lines are drawn between the adults and the teenagers. And what she captures so brilliantly and immediately is the gulf that opens up between teenagers when they start to transition into adulthood. You know, and the the disdain that they have for their parents and all they stand for. And, 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 you know, to start with, that's kind of, it's not, I wouldn't say lighthearted, but it's kind of a bit kind of teenagery and you don't initially take that too seriously. You just go, oh, that's familiar. And, you know, the narrator is a teenager, Evie. And so it's through her eyes, the perspective of the adults and the other children that the whole sort of story unfolds. She has a younger brother, Jack, to whom she's very tender and she really looks out for him because the parents don't. Uh, He cares deeply for animals. And it's not noticed until much later that one of the adults in the house has given him a book to read. And it turns out that it's the Bible. So he is absorbing the stories of the Old and the New Testament. And the parables of the Bible are very important to the book. Right. The kids' phones and tablets have been confiscated. So, you know, they're expected to amuse themselves in the great outdoor sort of summer playground. They're in the woods, they're on the shores of a lake, they're paddling, they're canoeing, they're on the beach. And meanwhile, the parents drink and eat (laughs) and dance and, you know, they sort of go from meal to meal. The children are only required to appear for the evening meal. Um, So it sort of just seems like this very... This hedonistic, yes. endless house party. And it's, a, look, you know, it's probably a summer that a lot of people are familiar mm. with. Mm. You know, clearly these are very privileged people and the, the, the generational conflict may not necessarily seem completely normal, but it will be familiar to some people. And the teenagers have a game and they have to hide which parents they belong to. So it gives you a sense there must be a lot of kids yes. there. So they go to great 
pains to avoid being acknowledged <laughs> by their parent because, of course, they would be immediately disqualified from the game if their parent, go, you know, acknowledges them. <laughs> and one of the teenagers actually goes AWOL as soon as they arrive, and we only know that because one of the women says she hasn't seen her daughter for two weeks. <laughs> and we're laughing because there is that kind of humour to it, but it's, there's this real unease. There's this real unease. You know, the book is allegorical. There's lots of symbolism. There's parallels drawn between the parents' disinterest in the teenagers or rather their complete absorption in themselves. Yeah. As sort of symptomatic of their lack of attention to very important things that are happening around them that they've ignored on their watch, namely the environment. Right. Oh. So one day the kids jump into some canoes and they paddle out to the mouth of the river where it meets the ocean. For a, They think they're going camping for a few days on the beach, but they get news from the house that some bad weather is coming and they need to return. And that is exactly what happens. There is a devastating storm. It's a hurricane essentially, and it smashes the summer house. And I mean, really smashes it. You know, trees fall on the roof, they lose power, they're cut off, the waters are rising. It's got a very dreamland-esque feel about it, you know, and also felt a little bit like your Leave the World Behind book as well. It's definitely got that feel about it. Lydia Millet goes full Noah's Ark on us. Um, Little Jack is desperate to save the animals that he's been caring for in the woods. Of course, the adults are expected to step up, (laughs) but they completely lose the plot. They go full Sodom and Gomorrah on us. They become hysterical, they drink, they take drugs, they have sex with each other as if it's the end of the world. Good grief. So the children decide that they need to leave to find help. They're they're the responsible ones. But their quest to get to safer ground presents plenty of danger. And I'm not actually going to say very much more about the second half of the book. They do find shelter, but it becomes sort of a battle between good and evil. Oh. And then there's a heavenly intervention. Oh, oh my goodness. (laughs) I really want to read that. Yeah, it's, it's a cracker of a book. It really is. I loved it. Released last year, I would recommend anyone to find it. And I'm now going to hunt down Lydia Millet's books. Yes. Because she just writes so well. And how so she's well. managed to fit all that yes. into. Yes. Yeah. And I have literally given you yeah. the first quarter, oh, if, if that. Love it. And she is extremely erudite and educated in relation to the environment. Ooh, There's nothing it. sentimental in this book. She's, you know, Gosh, she's, it's fabulous. Fantastic. Fabulous. Wow. What about you? What have you just um, The one I am going to talk about is Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri. Oh. Oh. This was a book my sister chose for book club and because of the impending lockdown, I missed book club and I haven't been able to discuss it with anyone and I really want to know what they all thought. And even though Whereabouts is written by Jhumpa Lahiri, who often writes about Indian characters, which would have tied in beautifully with the book you gave me. Mm. This book really doesn't have anything at all to do with India. So Jhumpa Lahiri is an English-born American who now lives in Italy. So she's just amazing, just right, even if you just stopped right there. She's the daughter of Indian parents who had emigrated from Bengal. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2000 for her debut short story collection, uh, which was Interpreter of Maladies. Oh, which was magnificent. It was fantastic. Yeah. And she's also written The Namesake, which has been adapted to screen. Um, she's written The Lowland and another collection of short stories, Unaccustomed Earth. I've loved all of mm. them. 
And in 2012, Jumpa and her husband and their two children moved to Rome to live and she had to learn the language. Wow. Her husband has a slightly Italian-sounding name, so I don't know what his position was with this, but it was a, an issue of just complete absorption. Mm. And the incredible thing about her is that she wrote this book, Whereabouts, in Italian first. Oh, that's extraordinary. And then translated it into wow. English. So that gives you an idea of how clever she is. So if you haven't ever read Jhumpa Lahiri, I strongly recommend you make a start because her writing is just sublime. So this book, Whereabouts, it's a very small novel. It's made up of a series of connected and building chapters and each chapter is a discrete topic. I actually didn't realise it was a novel for quite a while and I actually thought it was autobiographical for Mm. a little while. It's really more like a series of just essays. And if you didn't know that she's married with two teenage children, you might think it was autobiographical because it has a very authentic interior voice, but it's not autobiographical. So each chapter is amusing on something in the narrator's life in Italy, but the narrator in this is a single woman. She's never married. She's in her 40s. She has no children. And she has almost no ties to anything or anyone. Mm. And even though it's set in Italy, it could almost be set anywhere. There's not a strong sense of place. So it has a a universality Mm. about it, which is very appealing. It steps very lightly on the earth, if if you can put it that way. If you're all about heavy plot-driven books, then this is not for you because there really is only the very lightest of plot flowing through the book. And she just develops a few very delicate themes. But there is a slight sense of foreboding in one of the themes, which I thought was just so cleverly done. I'm not going to spoil and say Mm. what that is. But it's the writing that's just so beautiful. Her writing is like a soft, billowy curtain. Mm. That's the best way I can describe it. It just sort of deftly touches the page Mm. and leaves an impression. And every word is perfect. Nothing is overdone and nothing is too flouncy. So I absolutely loved it. It completely held my attention. Does it move towards from start to a resolution or sort is there a, is there a connective tissue There's between connective tissue and yeah. it builds it yeah. does build yeah, okay. particularly one theme which is the one that has the the foreboding oh you've really piqued my interest quite, it's the lightest yeah. most delicate filmy sort of story but it's beautiful and i it was a pleasure to pick it up each time it didn't take me very long to read it i was sort of always happy to come back to it yes. I, I wasn't an effort to read and it really made me want to go back and reread her books. And mm. in fact, there's a couple of her books that I haven't read. There's one that is autobiographical about their life in yes. Italy. And I'm I'm really keen to read mm. that now because I just loved it. It was just beautiful. So that was Whereabouts by Jumpa Lahiri. Mm. So now we're going to discuss the books that we swapped. So, yes. did you want to go first, Lou? Yeah, you okay. can talk about the one I. Yes, chose I'm so for you. thrilled you swapped this book with me. I really loved it, but you knew it would be right I up thought my so. alley. I thought so. Yeah. So I'm going to go straight into the story. It's in 2013, so yep. I can probably give a few more bits and pieces about it. I think. Do you think? No, no. no you don't want me to. <laughs> okay. All right. Oh gosh. Okay. Now I'm going to have to be careful. All right. So the book opens with an elderly gentleman 
Wiseman, Jack Wiseman, who we later learn is a retired professor. He's professor of the classics. Um, And he's on his way to pick up his granddaughter, Natalie, who's come to visit him from New York to be with him in Maine. And it's no secret he's dying of pancreatic cancer and he wishes to be at home, which is why Natalie is coming to look after him. And we learn they've always been especially Quite close. close yeah. yeah. She's happy to be spending time with her grandfather, of course. She's just ended her marriage to a man who her grandfather didn't particularly like. And they'd married quite hastily. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because, because the wedding was a spur-of-the-moment thing at her grandfather's uh, house not so long ago. She had asked her grandfather if she could wear this pendant That's right. Yeah. to her wedding. Uh, it was a pendant that she had assumed had belonged to her grandmother. She'd sort of found it in some drawers in their room. And it was a pendant that was enamelled and it was of an ornate peacock. And, of course, that is central to the whole story. The book's in three parts. The first part of the story is Natalie's grandfather Jack's experiences as a US soldier in World War II. Um, He's stationed in Salzburg, Austria, after the war. And he's useful because he has a fantastic knowledge of languages, so he's useful as a translator. The second part of the book is Natalie's quest to fulfil her grandfather's wishes after he has died to return the pendant to the rightful hereditary owners. And then the third part of the book, it's a bit sort of quirky and fun. It's at times, not completely. It's set in Budapest well before the war. And it is, I think it's set in 1913. And it kind of sets the context That's right. for yeah. some of the characters that we meet yeah. during the war and particularly the providence of the pendant and its owners. So just very briefly, Jack is a young US officer, a captain in Salzburg after World War II. And of course, in Austria and very many places after World War II, there were many displaced persons, Mm. deeply traumatised people. Displaced persons was a moniker they gave to the people who'd survived the work Mm. camps and the concentration camps. So they are in one sense free, but free of the Nazis, but Mm. of course not free at all because they were facing terrible deprivation. And Jack is... And very poor health. Very poor health. Uh, On so many levels, Mm. there's just just so many many issues that we could spend the entire podcast talking about. And Jack is put in charge of a stationary train and its contents, which turn out to be the personal possessions and treasure of the Hungarian Jews, which they were forced to turn over to the banks in Hungary and which the Nazis subsequently seized. And, of course, as you mentioned before, this is inspired by real facts. It's the real story of the Hungarian gold train, which had confiscated or held the confiscated jewellery, artworks, china, furniture, antiquities, which were confiscated by the Nazis. Jack is Jewish. He's not especially observant, but he takes his job really seriously. And he and his men are compiling a very detailed inventory of items on the train. And he believes rather naively that they are getting the items ready to be repatriated to their owners. So he's devastated when he is given requisition orders to furnish the temporary homes of US colonels and generals who are, of course, stationed in Austria at that time. And the irony is not lost on him that, of course, the US Army is shamelessly plundering the personal possessions just as the Nazis had done. 
Anyway, I'm not going to say any more about that. He has a relationship with a young displaced person, Iona, who is a refugee. She's also a survivor of Auschwitz and Dachau. And, of course, he shares something of his job with her and she's keen to find out if there is anything on that train from um, her homeland. And, you know, the, the pendant plays a role in this, but it's worth noting that for many of these European people, particularly from Hungary, the peacock is viewed as a symbol of bad luck and ultimately their relationship does not survive. So in the present day, you know, Natalie travels to Budapest uh, and she's introduced to an Israeli art dealer who is also trying to track down artworks that belonged to the families of Jews from this period uh, and restore them to their rightful owners. And so the two of them are sort of united in this search. Um, He's looking for a surrealist painting which features the image of a woman with the head of a peacock. Right. So the two of them have this talisman of the peacock and they combine their efforts to sort of solve the mysteries. And I guess the third part of the book hints at what what may have been the history to the possession of those two items, which I won't sort of spoil for anyone. Obviously, anti-Semitism is, you know, the strongest theme in the book across all eras from Mm. 1913 to the present day. You know, it really made me think the displaced persons were were so traumatised by their experiences in the camps and their loss of family Mm. and the loss of health, as you had said also. But the insult to injury that when they returned to their homes, they weren't greeted with bouquets and open arms. Their homes had been taken over by non-Jewish citizens during the war. Yeah. And they were met with violence when they tried to reclaim them. Yeah. So they were sort of displaced twice. Yeah. And some of the usurpers and ancestors of the usurpers live in those homes today. Yeah. 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 And so really they were faced with this renewed anti-Semitism from their citizens despite Mm. supposedly being at peace. There was also a view that if you survived, and this was a view that other Jews propagated, that if you had survived, you must have somehow done something wrong. You must have dobbed in a fellow inmate or you must have betrayed your race in some way. You must have done something bad to survive. So there's very layered and complex Mm, mm. issues there. The book also explores some really strong themes relating to the societal roles and expectation of women. Yeah. Probably particularly in the Jewish society, both in the present day and eras before, after the world wars, particularly in how you're supposed to conduct yourself in a way that doesn't offend society and education and marriage. And, of course, in the third part of the book, there is a young Jewish girl, Nina, who's independent and she rebels against her parents. She wants to, I think, become a doctor, but they, of course, want her to marry well and settle down. It's a fabulous story, isn't it? Yeah, it's just I thought so it was layered. Yes. And, oh, I mean, I, I almost wanted it to keep going. Yes. I have absolutely, you know, nothing negative to say about it. I, I, I'm so I, glad I, you enjoyed I it. I thought yeah. the three sections might end up being a little bit sort of disjointed. Yeah. But the third section really brings it all home. Loved it. And it's quite interesting to put that at the end. Yes, yes. It just really plays yeah, around it was time and your expectations. I read a little bit about Aylet Wall- yeah. Wallman. She's a fascinating she woman. Is. I follow them on Instagram. Yes. She and her husband, is it Michael, Michael Chabon? Chabon, Yes, are quite cute together. Yeah. And I thought that there might have been some autobiographical detail here, but she literally said that she was fascinated by 
the theft of art and World War II, and she literally Googled those phrases. Wow. And it came up with Hungarian gold train and she was off. off. she went. Yeah. I wish she'd write something else. I don't, yes. I don't know that she's written anything since then because no, I, really, I really loved her writing. So thank you for great. that. Yeah, good. Really, oh, really I'm glad good glad you enjoyed pick. it, Lou. Loved That's it. Good. Okay, well, the one I'm going to talk about is the one you gave to me, which mm. is Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. And I have to say at the outset, I just adored this book. Good. One of my favourite themes in books is duality mm-hmm. and this book is almost entirely about yes. duality it is right up my alley yeah i just have so much fun noticing all the little examples dotted everywhere and, and admiring how he did it it's quite substantial it's 650 yes, I'm pages so sorry <laughs> so i do have quite the feeling of achievement in having yes. read it too uh, so salman rushdie was born in June of 1947, Mm. and that's significant. Yes. And he is an Indian-born British-American novelist. So he's a bit like Jhumpa Lahiri, just this sort of multicultural person who brings all of that to his writing in the same way that she does. Uh, Midnight's Children was his second novel. It won the Booker Prize in 1981. And then... In both the 25th and 40th anniversaries of the Booker Prize, this book was voted the best novel of all the winners. Mm. So it's kind of like this is the best book Mm. ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much what that's all about. And I don't really know why I had never read it, to be honest, but I suspect size may have been one of those silly factors. You weren't put off by the fatwa? I think I was. So his fourth novel was The Satanic Verses and that came out in 88 Mm. and that was the subject of a very serious controversy because he, uh, in the story, he included quite an irreverent depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. Yes. And the Ayatollah Khomeini declared a fatwa calling for Rushdie's assassination. And I do remember being a little bit... Yeah, a little bit put off. It was unnerving. It, it was, was a very bit unnerving, unnerving and, and yeah. sort of not wanting to yes. associate with that. Or people were reading. I remember, you know, being in London and people were reading it on the tube, and people were nervous. Yeah, people yeah. were very nervous. You just didn't want to yeah. sort of draw attention to the fact. Yes. So that may well have had something to do with it. But this book, it has such a clever premise, which is that it follows those children who were born in India on the 15th of August, 1947, at the stroke of midnight, at the exact moment of the partition of India and Pakistan. And remember that Rushdie himself was born in June of that year. So although he wasn't born on the 15th of August, this is very much a story that I think uh, reflects his life. And in the story, he has 1,001 children born Mm. at that time. I have no idea how many there really were. But the book is told by the main character, Salim, and he is one of those children born at midnight. And there's also a shadow story of the other baby that was born at the same time in the same hospital, Shiva, who is sort of Salim's nemesis. And one baby is from a reasonably well-to-do family and the other is not and they have a bit of the duality. And the main character is telling the story of his life to... Padma, who is his carer, and there's sort of a more intimate relationship as well there. And he starts the story by going back to his grandparents and then he just rolls forward and reveals this sort of very full and colourful 
background to their lives, how they met, and then his parents and his aunts and uncles and how they all met one another. And it covers a very diverse area in India. It it goes to Kashmir and all, all over the place. And then in telling his own story, he is also telling India's story. And he then comes forward to his own birth at the stroke of midnight and the birth of the two new nations. Yes. And then the story rolls forward into what happens after that. And one of the starting points for his birth is that he has... Nehru write to Salim at the time or shortly after his birth saying that Salim's fate and the fate of the newly independent India will be forever tied to one another and to some extent that is Mm. true. And at one point in his life, Salim even ends up across the border in Pakistan and so Rushdie even takes us there for a time so we also explore the fate of Pakistan from that night. One of the key elements in the book is magical realism. I know that's not for everybody, but it's just so well done Mm. in this. Incredible. And the main way he does that is that he gives all the babies who were born at the stroke of midnight special powers. All of them have different powers. So Salim is able to communicate telepathically with all of those midnight children. One of them can uh, look into a mirror and walk through the mirror and come out into another time and another place. They can shapeshift, they can hear things. That they, every one of them has a different special power and the book sort of looks at why they've been given those powers and it's rather delightful the way he sort of incorporates that. I just loved the importance of the stroke of midnight. Yes. I thought that conjured up. Um, Cinderella, yes, um, yes, magic. It is fairy very, tales. Yes. There is just something about yeah, the stroke. The of symbolism of it is we, just of course so we special. visit that every new year. Yeah, and a new beginning, mm. a, a sort of an ending and a new beginning, which is what this was. And the thousand and one children with their diverse special talents are spread all over India, and they really quite beautifully represented the cultural and religious and geographic diversity that makes up India and Pakistan. So many different languages and religions and backgrounds all, you know, embodied in, in the one country or in the two countries as it became at midnight. So I, I just loved it. Some of the instances of duality that I just particularly loved, there's the pairing of the birth of the children in the, in the hospital and then the birth their birth with the birth of the nation then there's india and pakistan yes and then even within pakistan there's pakistan and bangladesh there are lots of references to the game of snakes and ladders and you know you can go up the ladder and then you can also end up going down, back yes. down again which happens a lot to salim and the other characters. There's good and evil. There's religion and secularity. Uh, There's Muslim and Hindu uh, in particular. And the other one which I found really fascinating was the individual and the collective. Yes. That's always such an interesting tension between the rights and the interests of the individual versus the interests and the needs of the collective. And, I mean, we're seeing that a lot, aren't we, in 2021 with a pandemic. And there are also lots of repeating patterns in the family, which I thought was very cleverly done. 
there's a particular one that's really good, but it would be a spoiler, so I'm not going to say what that is. But the book is just rich with details and symbolism and lots of allusions to religious stories, not just Hindu and Muslim religious stories, but also Christian stories. Sort of you can see allusions to Shakespeare and other classics in English literature, which I think is Rushdie bringing his British education into the book. So it's just just this rich, bejeweled story that's just brimming with... Yes, which is India. uh, Yeah, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. One of the things that I did love about this, and I don't want to, I'm sort of nervous about mentioning this because it sort of takes you out of the story to talk about this, but on the subject of duality, one of the things that I noticed about this book is that I think Salman Rushdie effectively wrote it twice, or at least that's how I imagine Mm -hmm. he did it, because you can sort of see the basic architecture of the story and the arc of the life of sort of Salim's grandparents right up to the current time, which I think is about 77. But then what Rushdie has done is he's gone back over the story and inserted all the little clues and foreshadowings yes. of things to come. And I'm pretty sure he couldn't have done that until he'd written yes, okay, the story. Yes, that's really interesting. And so they're like little Easter eggs that he drops in. Yes. Uh, and there's nothing I love more in a story yes. than a little Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> just dropped in there for me to find. Yeah. I just find that so enticing. Sebastian Barry does that as well. Yes. And I just love his books for the same so reason. So you think that that's almost part of his signalling that he does after the event? Well, I was thinking about it and I think it's a very clever way of giving a great impetus to a book and maintaining the forward propulsion. So what he does is he sort of tantalises the reader with an odd quirky fact or something that makes a sentence that makes not a lot of sense. Yes, no, that's true. And then you realise that if you just keep reading, all will be revealed. revealed. And because you get rewarded regularly where you go, oh, that's what he was referring to. You then, it's, it's it's a bit addictive. You come across another one and you think, oh, this is going to be great fun. I can't wait to find out what that's about. It's really quite a mm. clever device. So that's how I I think that he went about that because a lot of the things that he puts in, he could not have put in mm. until he knew exactly how the story was going to end. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, because I think it's fair to say, and it's not a criticism, it's just an observation that you can't, not remain on the watch with Salman Rushdie. Yeah. You know, like you have to yeah. be quite fully engaged you really in the do. reading. As opposed to, for example, Vikram Seth's Suitable Boy, which raises a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same dualities that you've mentioned, equally rich. It's a far gentler read. Oh, that's interesting. Whereas, yeah. well, I, that's how I describe it. Yeah. Whereas I think with Rushdie, you really have to be kind of on the ball. Yes. Well, I read it with a highlighter pen in my hand. <laughs> okay, there you go. Because I after yeah. I realized that he was going to do this, it was sort of fun and it also meant that it connected me to the story and I thought this is a huge story and I'm going to have trouble remembering yes. who's who. There's so many names. They're Indian names so they're not familiar to me and there's no. there's a lot of you know, there's Salim and Shiva, a lot of S names and, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of A names. So I did use that, but I did have, you do have to stay very vigilant and pay attention, but you are rewarded. Yeah. 
It's an extraordinary concept, isn't it? That it's almost like oh. those children are in no man's land. So clever. You know, it really is fabulous. And, so and that clever. they are special. And so he, he decides to reward them by giving them special yeah. powers yeah. because they, yeah. of course, are these very yeah. special yeah. children. And, then, and, of course, as the story progresses, there are no longer a thousand no. and one. The number no. reduces and yeah. all sorts of very yeah. clever. I mean, I, I suspect he probably wrote it yes. not twice but probably 20 times. He probably went over and over. It's just so beautifully done and I absolutely loved it. I do think the issue of duality is a very interesting one to think about in 2021 mm. because we're being reminded that not everything is binary. No. And I do wonder if that literary device will be wow, as popularly yes. employed mm. from now on. So even though I recognise that the world is is not made up of One everything or the other. being black or white, good yes. or evil, it is still a very fun pastime yes. to sort of notice the, the myriad examples of dualism in a literary work like this. And we do default, well, maybe generations will change. I think but so. But our generation does default to one or the other, yeah, don't yeah. We? we? When we see something, we yes. we do compartmentalise into one or the other. And you think of the sliding doors stories. Yes. But, of course, it's a, your it's choice might complex. not be A or B. It might be C, D, E or, you know. Yes. And the world is much more greyer and nuanced and it's become Coming even more yeah. so, so. And younger readers may not have that as yes. ingrained or as def their default. Yeah, they may not find it as fun to latch onto. But I certainly, I, I just, mm. it's just so, I don't know, it's just so entertaining to sort of think about it in those terms. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, I loved it. Thank you, mm. It was fantastic. Mm. So uh, what else have you been diving into lately, Lou? Uh, well, I've been reacquainting myself with a podcast that I absolutely love, but I think over COVID I kind of took a bit of a, I think I took about six months break from it because, you know, there's only so many hours yeah, in the day, I know, aren't there? I know. So I've returned to This American Life, who people will know is presented by Ira Glass, and it's just the most, the production quality of this podcast is just superb. So I just wanted to recommend a couple of recent episodes that I listened to and absolutely loved. There was one on the 14th of June. Uh, it was episode 739. So Ooh, you know wow. how many they do. Oh my uh, it's called Sisters. And it's a fabulous episode because it kind of reminds us that we all play a role in our families and we tend to, uh, this is a bit of duality in this as well, I suppose, mm. we tend to define ourselves by that role within the family. You know, there's the neat one, there's the messy one, there's the high-achieving one, there's the good one, the wayward the one. The firstborn, the yeah. baby. Yeah, we, 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 we have to put labels on things, don't we? <laughs> and I think it's interesting to think about how the other members of the family might define you. You know, if you think you're the messy one, would they define you as the yeah. messy one? And so the episode is about the sort of, relationships and the bonds between sisters, some close, some broken, some mended, some not. And I really, really enjoyed that episode. So I can really highly recommend that one. so good. And then the other episode that I wanted to mention, which is in fact an, a replay of an older episode. You know how some podcasts yeah. decide yeah. to, and, it, and it's honestly, I could listen to it over and over again. And it's called The Power of Words. It was very recently. If you pull up The American Life podcast you will see it there and this is something very close to our hearts Virginia it presents the incredible story of a young woman who was held captive in Pakistan by members of her family and she was sustained by a hidden copy of the novel Little Women oh and 
today, many years later, she's living in the US, you could read a sentence to her from Little Women. Oh, yes, I've heard about it. And she would be able to tell you exactly where it is in the novel and what it refers to. So I'm just going to quickly give you a little bit of a praise about this episode. So Shamila grew up in Maryland in the US. Her parents were not her biological parents. Her biological parents were her uncle and aunt. And her mother's younger sister had given birth to her uh, and given her to her older sister as part of this familial duty because at the time her older sister couldn't have children, but she did go on to have a couple of sons. And so we fast forward to Shamala. She's 11. She's a pretty regular young girl. She's, you know, being raised in the US. But her family in Pakistan are not happy with her being raised in such a liberal household her clothes, her choice of music, her books. She was too independent for them. So on a family holiday to Pakistan, they essentially kidnapped her and they wouldn't give her back. It's just, you know, you hear it, just the weight, the weight that you feel when you listen to this. Mm. She was told that her US family didn't really love her and she was prohibited from speaking English or Urdu. She had to speak Pasha, which was the, uh, the, you know, the only language she was allowed to speak in the region. She was beaten. And the, a girl at school purchased for her, for, I think for nine rupees, a copy of Little Women, and she split the book into eight sections and oh. she hid the sections in her mattress and she could read it alone when she was alone and wasn't at risk of being discovered. Oh, my goodness. So she loved the sisters in Little Women. She, she felt a bond with them. There's one section she talks about where... She felt that when she was going downstairs to be with her family, she was going downstairs to be with Beth and Amy and Aww. Joe and Meg. Like she felt she was with them. And there were these strange parallels that she created between her life in Pakistan and the book. And it sort of became a bit of a survival guide for her. So her family in Pakistan wanted to marry her off, so they would dress her up and take her to parties to attract the right person in the same way that the book opens in Little Women. Yes. You know, they're going off to these parties. But she, of course, identified strongly with Jo. You know, Jo oh. brings it home for so yeah. many young women, yeah, doesn't absolutely. she really? You know, Jo's improper, she breaks the rules. And it allowed Shamila deep down to hold on to herself, her oh. identity. I mean, it's the most moving episode. Yeah. So, you know, obviously she'd entered this very strict traditional life, you know, where women were expected to marry and be mothers. And, of course, that's the roles that Joe rebels yeah. against. Yeah, absolutely. And in the same way, the second half of the book, where they do all toe the line and do what young women were expected to do, she does the same in order to survive. Yeah. And, of course... You know, wow. down the track, she's in America, and, and you can hear about how she got she back should to write the states. A book. It's the most extraordinary story. I believe she's a counselor or a therapist in the states, wow. and she sort of deals with people who are traumatized. But mm. it is the most extraordinary episode. That is called "The Power of Words on This American Life" by wow. Ira Glass. You've got to listen to it. Yeah. And then the only other thing I'm going to mention: your lovely sister. Speaking of sisters, <laughs> yeah, uh, knows how obsessed I am with the West Cork podcast. Oh, yes. it was one of the first when podcasts yes. first started coming out. It was one of the first podcasts, true crime podcasts, yeah. that I got hold of. Me too. Uh, it's just magnificent. I can still sort of yeah feel the menace in yeah, that story. That's a very good way of putting it, Virginia. It's obviously about the death of a young French woman who had a holiday home in West Cork in Ireland and she was brutally murdered. And this happened 25 years ago. Well, Netflix have brought out 
a documentary, sort of documentary, on the show, and it's called Sophie, a Murder in West Cork. Go watch it, folks. It's fantastic. I saw it last night. I haven't watched it yet, yeah. but I thought, oh, my goodness. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I would say listen to the podcast. It's available on Audible. Yeah. Definitely listen to the podcast because I think the podcast builds does. the story in such an incredible way. Yes, it's very cleverly yeah. done. Yeah, and they can't quite do that in the documentary. No. Maybe that's because I already know all the facts. Yeah, we know. <laughs> I know who every piece suspicious. of evidence. <laughs> I know every piece of evidence. <laughs> Um, but still, yeah, it's definitely worth watching on Netflix. Yeah, okay. Oh, that sounds so good. Excellent. What about I, you? What have I you been watched, uh, I've got two things that I've really enjoyed. One is Belgravia on oh, ABC yes. iView. So I've read the book by Julian Fellows mm. and what a talent. Loved is. the book. He's, mm. But this has to be one of the cleverest little family twists, mm. which is the whole premise for the story. I just don't even know how he thought of it, mm. but I just can't stop thinking about how did he even dream this up because it's just incredibly clever. And then there's some misunderstandings and, you know, just it's just so cleverly done. It's a period drama mm. and it's about two families, one aristocratic and the other one is the family of the developer who built Belgravia and also the Isle of Dogs in yes. London. And there's this excellent family secret is it the whole Gerald Grosvenor? Because that wasn't he the property developer of it? Wasn't it the Grosvenor family? Eventually? I don't know. Okay. The developer is played by Philip Glenister. Oh, yes. Who's such a great actor. Fantastic he was in one of the actor. Persuasion. And Life on Mars. Yeah. Oh, he's the, he was the police officer in Life on yeah. Mars. He's so brilliant. He is, you know, and he's just ageing a bit. So yes. he's, he's just perfect. He's yes. so good. But it's a, you know, a fabulous cast mm. of all the usual suspects. The period costumes are gorgeous. The with the way it unfolds, and it's very true to the book mm. because I think Julian Fellows looks oh, as yes. though he's maintained his connection to the screenwriting of it. So I strongly recommend that. Mm. It's just delightful. It's about five or six episodes, well worth binging. Yes. Great escapism, and then the other thing I've been really enjoying is uh, listening to the audio of. Pride and Prejudice and also Persuasion. The Pride and Prejudice is read by Rosamund Pike and she does all different voices for all the different mm. characters. She's really good at mm. it. And it's just such a great book to fall asleep to. I just keep going back and mm. going over it and over it. And you get a completely different take on the you book when audio. you listen to audio. There's yeah. different things that mm. you really notice and hone in on. But then I... I listen to the Novel Pairings Books podcast, which we love. We do. But they've done the, the most fantastic two-parter on Pride and Prejudice because they both have taught. Yes, they're English teachers, aren't they? Yeah, Pride and Prejudice. And I just really would recommend both of those episodes. They're fantastic, really mm. enjoyable, and also give you a, a slightly different take mm. on. They're very good at reminding us that things were very different back then yes. and what we're wanting to sort of marry a rich man wasn't just wanting to marry a rich man in a vacuum. It was literally the only way these yes. women yes. were going to be able to eat because they were of a certain yes. class. So they're really grounded in the... They do. They really go yeah. back to basics and yeah. sort of make you feel like you've done a little course in yes. Pride and Prejudice. Absolutely fantastic. So... Uh, no, they're very good. two episodes there and I just highly recommend them. So fantastic. 
So that's it for us today. It was really fun swapping books. I think mm. it was successful. Learning. Yes, I think we should do it again, yeah. maybe yeah. early next year. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So let us know if you've read any of the books that we've discussed today because we love to hear what you thought of them. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. And if you have, we'd love you to write us a review or tell a friend about our podcast mm. so that we can increase our audience. Your word of mouth recommendations and shout outs on social media make a lot of difference to us and we really appreciate mm. it. Okay, bye. Bye for now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, dying.